and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. Amen. I want to remind you is how Paul starts this chapter. And I want to draw your attention to this opening verse in Paul's, in this chapter. In fact, it's the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians. There is obviously an issue that has disturbed him enough to include this such a long chapter in his letter to them. And the surmise is that in the fellowship, in the church in Corinth, there has... um, arisen a number of people who have taken upon themselves to, to, to readapt, to reinterpret, reconfigure the basic tenets of the gospel, and particularly the nature of Jesus' resurrection. You know, I don't know about you, but I enjoy listening to BBC Scotland when I'm in the car. You know, Kirsty Young listening to her on the radio, but there's almost a kind of default way that they do radio these days, and the way they do it is often through... Um, Ask the public what they think. Have a phone in. Tell us what you think. Give us your views. Give us your opinions on this or that and whatever. You know, and I've listened to it so much that I can almost imagine the way the, the conversation, the way the topic, the way the, the radio phone in would work. It'd be like, hi, Kirsty, this is Craig from uh, Ballantar. And uh, yeah, just what you were asking. Well, actually, I don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, no, Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. I'm sure his disciples were so much in denial, they, they probably stole his body out of the tomb and, and, and they've hidden it somewhere. It's not possible, it's not natural, it's, uh, it's impossible even. And so it would continue like that. And then they would have a doctor come onto the radio program and explain this, that, well, the possibility of resuscitating someone from the dead might be possible if the body was preserved at near freezing temperatures immediately following the failure of the heart but only for a brief window of time because the longer the body remains without oxygenated blood flowing through it, it will inevitably begin to break down and decompose. Cell damage will incur and the increase in the damage of brain damage and tissue decomposition. It would make for an interesting debate on the radio, but nothing more because the underlying reasoning for the programme It's just to fill airspace. And because nobody really actually believes in it. And this is the same scenario that Paul met when he went to Athens. We can read it in Acts chapter 15. He was invited to the Aeropagus in Athens, which was like the seat, the university, the place of new thinking, new ideas, philosophical thought. And they were intrigued by his teaching, by the gospel. 
But as he approached the whole idea of resurrection, it says that they laughed at him. And what was it they found so ridiculous? In fact, what was it that unnerved them even? It's because the idea of the resurrection of Jesus roots everything about him in historical reality. The new teaching that Paul was bringing to them, it wasn't just a product of Paul's imagination or a new philosophical outlook on life. It is life. It's God at work in the physical world, in physical reality, and it's truth that demands a response either way. And it's a truth that dispels the cleverest of philosophical conjecture that makes it redundant. Because like any other claim, if this is really true, then Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. And that no one can come to the Father except by him. So the first thing I want to say this evening is avoid the pick and mix approach to faith. You know, given the the climate of our culture, anyone could could be forgiven for thinking that, you know, Christianity today, as with any other worldview or faith, is subject to the laws of pick and mix. You know that when you go to the cinema and you take up your takeaway box and you just drop in it the things that you like. I like that one. I don't like that one. I like that Well, The ones are quite nice. So I'll have some of them. Those ones are a bit extent. I won't bother with them. And we do it for no reason because we enjoy it. We have control of it. And that's the principle behind pick and mix that we have complete control of the product. You know, and it's been such a successful model that we've kind of adopted it and taken it beyond the sweet shop and tried to apply it to every sphere of life. And even faith. But what about the gospel? When I say the gospel, the gospel is an old word. It's a Greek word. It it literally means good news. And the gospel for us is a good news about Jesus. Well, again, there's always that temptation to take the word gospel or faith and turn it into a takeaway cup and just drop what we like into it. But it's not a modern phenomenon. It's as old as time itself. You know, the pick and mix attitude has been around as long as humankind has been around. We've seen it in the fall. We we see it through the pages of scripture again and again. But it's never in a positive light. We saw it in Adam and Eve in the garden when they thought that they knew better than God and couldn't take God quite seriously and tried to adapt the relationship according to their newfound aspirations and values. And there's an interesting incident in the book of Leviticus. It's where the sons of Aaron had taken upon themselves to uh, concoct an original mix of um, incense to burn in the presence of God. But the problem was it contravened the revealed will of God and what was acceptable to him. I'll read it to you. It's in Leviticus chapter 10. It reads this. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And it says this. They offered 
unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. You know, to trifle with the gospel, the revealed revelation of God is to play with unauthorized fire, is to invite disaster. And that's why Paul is such a matter of fact about the fundamentals of the good news about Jesus. Because it does have implications. He says, by this gospel, you are saved. Not by any other gospel, but by this gospel, if you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. You know, Paul is so unapologetically exclusive. He's exclusive because the gospel, the Bible, the word of God is exclusive, and he doesn't make any apologies for it. So in one sense, neither should we. In fact, I would go as far to encourage you to be an obstinate, objective follower of Jesus. That sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? (laughs) Let me explain what I mean. You know, when Chuck, uh, when he was at Northwest last week, he referred to the idea of uh, compelling powers in our lives. You know, it highlights for me again that that we're all subject to this vie for control in our lives. The to and fro of either being a, a subject to conformity in this present age, or rather being choosing to be a radical follower of Jesus. And if we choose to be a follower of Jesus, is to choose to resist the power and the pressure to conform to the current um, spirit of the age, if you like, the idea of this age, that all things are subjective, especially when it comes to the realm of faith and belief. You know, in one sense, faith and belief is something that's to be pushed to the periphery of life. In some sense, it's been reduced to the level of a diet plan. You know, choose your goal, choose your weight, choose a diet plan and see if it works for you. If it doesn't, try another one. It doesn't diminish the value of the diet plan that you just tried. It's just but one of many. Find the one that works for you and create your own, or create your own hybrid plan and see if it works. You see, with that kind of mentality invading our thoughts and our life and our faith, is that it causes us to lose sight of the fact that the gospel isn't a subjective truth. It isn't a subjective reality. You know, to apply the term subjective to a thing reduces it to the level of an opinion or just a preference. It has no real significance in life. It won't kill you. It won't heal you. It won't change your life in any radical way or anyone else. So in that sense, well, it's safe to talk about or rather more often, it's safe not to talk about because ultimately it doesn't really matter. But the difference is here is that an objective truth is a truth that's grounded 
in reality. You know, a couple of weeks ago uh, in Inverurie, and in, I know in um, parts of Aberdeen as well, but the flooding. And we had an opportunity to meet with some of the folks who live in Canal Road in Port Elphiston in Inverurie, in Contour, in Kemney. They could tell you what an objective truth is. That whilst they were lying in their beds one night, whilst they were sitting in a lounge, they were suddenly overwhelmed with floodwaters coming into their house that destroyed everything. It was real. It impacted on their lives. The physical evidence is still there to be seen. See what the floodwaters have done to us. So when Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised to life, it's not a statement just to invite a warm glow into our hearts. He's recounting a real-time event that took place in world history. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he achieved something. He brought something about. He affected something that can change the eternal destiny of every single human being that has ever lived. Regardless of time, culture, place. His dying for us is a real historical event. But somebody might object to me and say, well, it's true to an extent what you say, but to present the idea of Jesus dying for our sins as an object of truth is actually unacceptable. Jesus' dying may have been an observable object of truth, but you cannot say that dying for our sins is such because it's not observable. Well, I contest that. And I say, yes, it is observable. If you hold to the other half of the good news that Jesus was raised from the dead, he was resurrected. Everything that Jesus had predicted concerning himself, everything that he claimed concerning himself, his life's purpose, his goal, depends upon the historical evidence of his resurrection. You can't have one without the other. The death and the life of Jesus are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. And that's why Paul is at pains to remind them to recount the physical eyewitnesses, the recollection of the facts surrounding the gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. If this is true, then everyone's implicated in this. The whole earth. It's a universal event in history when God stepped into physical reality and affected, I'm going to use a technical word here, a propitiation for us. It's an old word. It's an unusual word. It's a word that John himself uses in his letters. And I use it because I want to explain what Paul means by Jesus dying for our sins. As I said, John uses it in his, his uh, first letter, First John in chapter 2, verse 2. He wrote this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That word propitiation, and I think the NIV replaces it with atonement, the word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction, specifically towards God. It's a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to them. You see, in all the events 
throughout the whole, the whole Testament, the saving graces of God towards his people, the lengthy prescriptions, the observances we read about in the scripture as to how God's people are to live in relationship with him, and how he make amends through the act of a, a substitutionary sacrifice. It was all intended to be a precursor towards the ultimate revelation and understanding that Jesus himself would come and offer himself up as the atoning sacrifice to avert the wrath of God and appease the justice of God and make us right with himself. You know, there's often a danger, a tendency to fall into error when we try to basically understand God. There's a temptation to simplify, to, to explain or get our heads around what the gospel is. And sometimes we conjure up this idea of God the Father wants to punish us. But Jesus the Son, he loves us. And so he steps in the way of the juggernaut of the Father's anger and takes it on the chin for us. I can understand why it might fall into that. But there is a danger in that. And that we're left with an idea that God is somehow dysfunctional. Who is at odds with himself. And he could even be accused of suffering from a, a multiple personality disorder. You know, when we consider the character of God, we must consider God in all his attributes, in all his character traits. Yes, he is love, absolute. But we must remember that he is holy, absolute. He is righteous, absolute as well. You know, Many years ago, I used to draw caricatures for the national papers. And in the, in an act, it was always to pick one characteristic, one feature of the person, and exaggerate it to the extent that every other character feature kind of diminishes. And you think, well, that's, that's like a likeness of the person. And we all do it to a certain extent with one another. And sometimes we're even tempted to do it with God as well. We choose one thing and we exaggerate it beyond others, but left, but then... We're left with a kind of misconstrued picture, an idea of what God is really like. I want to remind you tonight that it was in the mind of God before the creation, before the foundation of the world, to make a means of restoring us to himself and through himself. It is in his love, it's in his holiness, that he must be just and then must be righteous. He cannot abide wickedness. He cannot abide evil. It is contrary to his character. He must see justice done. And when he sees evil perpetrated by the one that he's created to be in his own image, again, it is his holiness. It is his righteousness. It is his sense of justice. It is his love that affects this act of saving grace in Jesus. His want for us is to be holy, to be righteous, to be blameless, to be as him. And so it calls upon him to effective means of restoring us to himself. Because you know, none of us are capable of restoring ourselves. And that's why we call it the incarnation. You know, Jesus, both God, both man. He satisfies his own sense of justice, which is, you know, it's not subject to the moral constructs that we create. 
God provides a means of enacting justice against wickedness by condensing himself into human form, both identifying with us and providing a perfect offering. You know, we'll be debating this into eternity because we'll never get our heads around it. But it's too wonderful for words. Through the death sentence passed on Jesus, fully man, fully God, we find our offences, our rebellion against God is forgiven. We're made right with him once more. But here's the thing. I cannot, we cannot, the apostles, the church, and all its various traditions cannot claim any of this to be true if it were not for the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's as simple as that. Everything that Jesus said about himself, the incredible claims, the authority to forgive sins, the authority to heal, the authority to teach, the authority to claim that he and he alone is the only way and means of being put right to God, to know eternal life. It's nothing more than a children's bedtime story. You know, we might as well be reading Julia Donaldson. But for the very fact of the resurrection. Do you see what I mean? Because the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It's not blind faith. Its very foundations are bound in historical reality and a real person whose claims about themselves were proved true by his resurrection. You may not be familiar with the name Albert Henry Ross, but he wrote under the pseudonym of Frank Morrison in his famous book, Who Moved the Stone? You know, at the preface of this book, he makes a confession. When the idea of his book first came into his mind, it began to formulate in the mind, he envisaged a very different book from the one he found himself actually writing. Because it was his original intent to discount the resurrection. He thought it was just a myth. But he found himself, as he systematically went through the core evidence... He found himself coming to the shocking conclusion that he couldn't longer, he couldn't disbelieve anymore. And this was his last sentence of the book. There certainly is a deep and profoundly historical basis for that much disputed sentence in the Apostles' Creed. The third day he rose again from the dead. Pastor and uh, writer John McClure he was a vineyard pastor, in fact. Sally passed away last year, but he wrote this concerning biblical faith. He says, You can have massive faith in a rickety chair, and it will not support you. It will go over, sit on it, and it will crash down. But you need only the tiniest wit of faith in a concrete floor. If you put out your toe and try it, you'll find that it will support you. Then walk on it. And pretty soon you realize you can run and you can jump. Just a little bit of faith in a concrete floor is sufficient. But you could also stand on a building ten stories up. Convince yourself that you can fly. And say, well, here, here I go. And dive off, flapping your arms. I tell you, you'll just drop like a brick. 
It doesn't matter how much faith you have, you can be loaded with faith. You'll just make a terrible mess. But on the other hand, you need only the tiniest bit of faith in a 747. If you can just muscle up the faith to get in the door and buckle yourself in, you can go all the way to London and beyond, and you'll be fine. The tiniest bit of faith in the right object is sufficient. And biblical faith is summed up again in the words of the Apostle John who wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Do you see, biblical faith, faith in the resurrection, is just taking the tiniest bit of faith and putting your faith in the right object. And that is Jesus, Jesus Christ. And say, Lord, I trust you. And it's that tiniest bit of faith in the resurrection. Vindicated by the resurrection. In one sense, it's the concrete floor of our faith. Everything he said about himself, everything he claimed he could affect for us, is true. Our forgiveness and our rightness with God. What did Paul write in Romans chapter 4 verse 23? It's recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count as righteous if we believe in him. The one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins. He was raised to life to make us right with God. He was raised to life to make us right with God. His raising was a definitive proof that everything he said was true. Not only for the forgiveness of the past, but of our future as well. Just as he was raised to life, so we will be raised to life on the last day. And it's this that was Paul's saving grace. Paul, or Saul, the one who ardently persecuted and sought to destroy the church and its witness, found himself saved by the very one whom he tried to convince everyone else was dead and buried. And that's why Paul knows that his former life is done with. His past is no longer a ghost that needs to haunt him. Because it is true. Jesus did die for him, and he was raised to life to make him right with God. So Christ's work is finished. It is complete. It is finito. As Jesus said in the cross, it is finished. I've done it. And I want to encourage you, if you're here tonight, and you find yourself haunted by things of the past, regret, things that you cannot undo, then I say to you, take it to Christ. Take it to the mercy seat of Him who has achieved something for you. He has achieved complete forgiveness. For only in Him is it truly done with. And again, if you've never taken that, put your foot out and dare to say, Lord, are you really there? Is it really true? Then then I would encourage you tonight, then do that. If you've never made that commitment of faith, do it. 
And I urge you to do it because Acts 17 says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. And you know, for those of us who have taken that leap of faith, who do have discovered that there is a concrete floor to our faith, it just gets better and better. You know, there used to be an advertising slogan uh, for a um, mobile phone company. The future is bright. The future is... Does anyone remember it? Orange. orange. Well, it didn't turn out to be orange, did it? It was EE or... <laughs> but for the one who is in Christ, the future is bright. The future, well, it's certainly more than orange... It's glorious. It's eternal. It's a life free from sickness or decay. It's a life of unparalleled beauty and endless energy. And even here in the the here and now, our lives do have purpose. They do have meaning. You know, we have a destiny beyond our wildest imagination. And the wonder of it, that it can begin here and now. You know, what did Paul write? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who believe. I want to encourage you with this um, last word from John. He wrote in John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of of God. You know, we could hang on that statement forever in itself. It's not just flowery language, it's true. Now we are children of God. What does that stir in your heart? That you're a child of God. And it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. It's wonderful, isn't it? That we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In the death and in the resurrection of Jesus, we see what should have been ours, taken by someone else. And it's in the resurrection of Jesus, we see what should not have been ours, being gifted to us by faith. By faith in the one who died for us and who was raised to life for us. The one who is one eternity for us. You know, Paul opened this chapter by saying, on where you stand. Well, I want to ask you tonight, where do you stand? It may well be that everyone here has said, well, yes, I stand on the rock. 
I stand on the, the truth. I stand on the gospel of Christ. But are you still there? Sometimes we think we're standing on a rock, but actually we discover that we've been standing in sand and we've shifted. We're no longer in the place where we thought we were. Does my life reflect a devotion, a commitment to Jesus? Maybe tonight you want to rededicate your life to Christ. Or maybe tonight you've been sitting on the fence for so long and it's never comfortable sitting on the fence. I've been there. At some point you've got to get off it. Where will you stand? You know, I remember Joshua and Judges, he said, when he, the people crossed the river, he said, Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be the Lord? Or are you going to put your faith in false idols? Where do you stand? Where are you going to, where are you going to fall on the fence? Choose, make a decision. Where are you going to go? You know, people are still asking. Just in the slide at the beginning, we had Doubting Thomas. We have a modern version of the painting as well. We have people asking, well, where is the evidence then? The evidence is in here. It's in the evidence of the history of the church. But you know something? The evidence of it needs to be in our lives as well. People need to see that if this, your life has been transformed. You are different. And it's because of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. I think we're probably going to continue with some worship. But during that time, can I just encourage you? If you want to recommit your lives do it if you want to commit your lives for the first time then do it just do it there's going to be folk uh, at the back waiting to pray with you about anything don't be reduced to just what I'm talking about just do it I stand